So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of the Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. I'm your host, Aaron LeBauer, and today my special guest is Gray Cook. Um, if you don't know Gray and you're a physical therapist, you've probably been sleeping under a rock, but I want to say uh, I'm super excited to have Gray on the show. He doesn't know this, but I've been learning from him for a long time without having met him, and that's the beauty of the internet and growing and scaling a large business, and some of the principles that he's learned were what I intended or thought I was going to learn when I went back to PT school. Um, so Gray, thank you so much for helping me, helping my practice and join us on the show today. No, thank you. And thanks for showing up in the parking lot uh, a while back. You're just walking around and uh, we just met and I was having a typical day on campus, but uh, you brought some energy that day and yeah. I'm, I'm glad we met and I'm glad we're doing this. Awesome. Yeah, so. I appreciate it. Yeah, I just was passing through town. I was like, well, let me stop off and see if uh, anyone's home. <laughs> and I'm glad I caught you guys. So thank yeah, you. The joke, the joke here in Chatham, Virginia is Gray, where's your clinic? And I'm like, you take a left at the light. And then they say, which light? And I'm like, you didn't listen. <laughs> the only the... <laughs> There's only right. one. <laughs> right. I was on a bike ride in Northern Maine. I was doing some bike touring and we got lost and we asked the kids, say, where do we turn to go here? And he said, Oh, it's way down past Johnny's house. And we're like, which one's Johnny's <laughs> house? Well, it was just the next house a mile down the road. Yep. <laughs> so awesome. Well, uh, what I want to do is just ask you a few questions just to hopefully maybe give people a little bit more insights about you, but just so I can learn a little bit and kind of set the stage for where we're going. Um, you've written a lot of books. You've taught a lot of people. But really what I want to know is when you got into PT, like, did you ever intend to start a business and teach a new movement system and start educating people? Or did you get in for some other reason and things just took a turn? Like, can you take us back to that time? And like, like, what was that aha moment? Um, my dad was a pretty good athlete and he was better than me, but I, I started sort of my whole journey in physical development or changing myself physically just as a young athlete. Uh, as a discus thrower, I played football. Um, you know, did some, did some stuff like that. So instantly the art of coaching was of more interest to me than, than becoming maybe healthcare healer oriented or whatever. And then I realized that the, the coach is only good when you're not injured. Mm. And so then I'm like, and some people get injured and never come back. We would see these athletic stories on TV or my dad and I'd be watching the documentary on Olympic athlete. So I said, who unpacks those problems, right? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, you know, sports medicine, physical therapy, orthopedic surgery, physiatry, chiropractic, osteopath, what do I want to do? The one thing I knew I didn't want to do is make a pharmaceutical company rich. They're already like two paychecks away from being richer than God, and I don't want them to be richer than God because then it'll think, things will be different. So I didn't want to feed the allopathic model, even as a young undergrad in college, I realized the allopathic model was set up for the convenience of the healthcare worker, not the person suffering. And mm -hmm. 
it reminds me of a story that I didn't have access to at the time, but Wayne Dyer, um, you know, he was, he was the motivational guy before Anthony Robbins came around, but Wayne Dyer basically tells a story of a, a village that was imprisoned by a bunch of warlords and all the people of fighting age were jammed in a prison. And, um, there were some people on the outskirts that wanted to at least do something. So one of the entrepreneurs said, let's get them some fresh water. They got to be jailed. The warlords are occupying the territory, but at least they don't have to drink that. Then another guy said, I, I have the resources to get blankets to everybody so they don't have to sleep on a floor. And another guy said, I'm in agriculture. Let's get them some fresh fruits and vegetables. The fourth guy was an entrepreneur and he said, I have a very special set of skills and friends. We're going to find the key and let everybody out. And so the first three are noble people in that they assumed they could help these people suffer comfortably. I want to be the badass that hands you to the key, hands you the key and says, you don't have to be in low back pain and you don't have to be 30 pounds heavier and you haven't done anything wrong except listen to media for healthcare advice. And we can, we can flip that right away. So I always wanted to be in a position for transformation, not transaction. Yeah. Because outside of athletics or outside of a wonderful moment with your family or friends, a transformational moment in the clinic is why you wake up and do it. And they don't happen every day at 2.30, right? The, I mean, one of my transformational uh, things in the clinic was I had to break through somebody's bad toe touch pattern one day in, in clinic. So I just, on the fly, invented the toe touch progression. Now, I commonly do that on stage when I'm lecturing to both healthcare workers and um, performance and fitness people, where I'll find somebody in the audience that literally hasn't pulled a correct toe touch in 20 years. I'm talking stopping at their kneecaps. And obviously you got to pick your person, right? Um, but I'm pretty good at pattern recognition. So I can tell as they're coming up on the stage, they're like, yeah, I've had fascial work for years. My posterior chain, I've got a lumbar disc. I've got fallen arches. They're just giving me the structural arguments of why they can't touch their toes. And the real reason is it's a poor weight shifting maneuver. And most people don't shift their weight back before they lean forward. And they have a tonic response in their hamstrings, which limits their range of motion. Mm -hmm. But that's an anti-fall command. That's not the, length, the static length of your hamstrings. So I'll do a trick. It's called the toe touch progression. TPI uses it in their golf education right now. We used it in the early days of kettlebell, getting somebody a little bit better hip hinging before they swing. The point being, I'm not showing you that uh, I have the neatest tricks in the world. All of us have neat tricks or we wouldn't get the mic and we wouldn't be on stage. What I'm demonstrating is without words, a functional problem. There is no structure keeping you from touching your toes. This is an organizational, operational, uh, tension allocation, alignment balancing act, and you're running the wrong app to touch your toes. Right. And so I do this little mind scrub, body scrub, and now all of a sudden you touch your toes because I took away the app that said, you've got to do it this way. A lot of people took that right back to the clinic and use that tactic to break through a bad forward bending movement pattern. They didn't use it the way I use it is to, I can do the same thing with single leg stance or T-spine mobility. The point is most of our clients, athletes, and patients coming to us today are under the illusion 
that a big part of their physical limitation is structural and it's not, it's right. functional. 99% of the reason your phone's running like shit today is you got too much shit open. Turn it off, close it down, let it reset. You'll find out you don't have a bad phone. It's got a bad operator. And right. the message that I really think we've, we've brought this movement conversation to is we can get to the bottleneck of any movement problem you got, even if it's between your ears or even if it's in your awareness, because we try to change behavior by adding a new behavior. The way you change behavior is to basically confront perception. And, and I really do appreciate those moments because my biggest moments in the clinic aren't a manip or a perfect placement of a dry needle or even the discovery of an exercise. It's when I do something that helps them get it because they never unget it again, especially people that have been burdened with a problem. If they've had a problem for a while and you elegantly, kindly, and clearly take them to that bottleneck of perception that they had and boom, it opens up. And, you know, the person who walked up on stage was saying all the way up on stage, I haven't touched my toes in 20 years. Mm -hmm. Because they I've didn't got say X, that. X, Y, and Z problem, right? Right. They were already preloading the can't. My confidence just outweighed your doubt today. So I win. And if your confidence doesn't weigh, outweigh their doubt, you're going to burn out quickly in practice. You got to carry the confidence, not the cockiness, right? It's different. You, you know, I think I... I see this and I think we're jump. I'm, my brain jumps in all the different directions, but uh, I think I see the problem. What I've been trying to figure out is how do I keep patients from coming in and saying, Dr. LeBauer, I was told never lift 35 pounds ever again. If I bend over, I'm going to blow up my disc and all these things. And I, but I'm starting to realize it's our society's messaging through media, through um, social media, you know, through movies, even just the rock chews opioids like candy in his movies. And it's like, and I'm seeing that that's a big feeder of the problem. How do we start changing that perception or how do we get PT in the forefront in a, in a correct manner of what we do or change the perception of the public of what injury and pain is all about so that it makes our jobs easier in the clinic, you know, when people come in and, and are saying, I've got all these problems, you, you know what I'm um, saying? No, I know exactly what you're saying. And I've mentored a lot of young therapists and I'm, I'm probably not a good mentor because I was raised by a guy who always told me be a leader, not a follower, mm -hmm. but I didn't understand what he was talking about. Um, I was a captain of the football team. I was a captain of the track team. I was an RA in my dorm. I always positioned myself in leadership roles, but three years into my physical therapy practice, I was becoming board certified as an orthopedic specialist. And I was already a strength coach. And I was already Olympic weightlifting coach. Um, and I realized many of the things that I was doing in clinic were easily preventable if I'd been there a few weeks ago. If I could have been your strength coach, I wouldn't have to be your PT. If I could have been your parent, I wouldn't have to be your confidant right now. And so I realized this space and opportunity of a touch with physical therapy that you got. The therapy is not the e-stem machine that I'm hooking you to or the scraping tool that I'm dragging across your tissue. The PT is the radically transparent algorithm that I'm running in my brain. The algorithmic thinking that's going to take me to the weakest link and then help calculate the minimum effective dose. It sounds lackluster. 
because I'm mm -hmm. arguing for minimums here, not maximum. Because if you, if you talk to a sleep expert, you're going to wind up in a 68 degree room that's totally dark and the TV goes off at 10 o'clock and all the kids are on Ambien, right? <laughs> so everybody in the space of advice argues for optimization. Right. Right. But it's they, not, they just, but optimization isn't always accessible. Nope. You're, if, if, if I've told this to young clinicians and I'll tell it to your audience too. If you're sitting at making a clinical decision and you have a choice to remove a negative or add a positive, remove the negative. If they need three bourbons to go to sleep and they're wondering if a little green tea in the morning would undo that, it won't. Remove the bourbon. You can hold on to the green tea or you can drink it. It doesn't matter. But the, the, the flaxseed shake, it doesn't beat the drive-through twice a day. It just doesn't. So when I'm basically seeing people who are uh, representing regional interdependence, they have multiple musculoskeletal issues and a focal point of pain. How do I justify treating the whole body and stuff? I go to the bottleneck. I literally do. And I don't guess at the bottleneck. I let a movement hierarchy tell me your bottleneck. And what I mean by that is in, in the developmental sequence of learning to walk, we see head and neck control. We see kids picking their feet up. We see them rolling. We see them doing things. And I honestly think that if you value taking a history of a patient, realize that every bit of that history ran through their frontal lobe and their conscious experience. But if I ask you if you can ask to grass deep squat with your heels flat, and you say yes, and then I ask you to and you can't, I'm going to believe your subconscious mind, not your conscious mind, because you have what we call a confidence reality disconnect. Mm -hmm. The objective information I just collected on your movement pattern, or I could do it on a force plate, camera, goniometer, doesn't matter. And what you think is a normal squat are disconnected. There's your problem in therapy right there. Until that problem goes away, heat, stem, scraping, needles and a bunch of uh, anatomical descriptions of how your glute and pelvic floor and back work together don't matter. They, they think their squat's fine. They right. think a squat is supposed to hurt. They think they're always supposed to shift to the right in a squat or their heels are supposed to pop up that early. Right. So creating the awareness. I didn't, I get through somebody's SFMA, their selective functional movement assessment or movement screen. I don't tell them how they scored. I go right to the bottleneck that the objective screen showed me hip hinge for one single leg stance for another breathing for one person right mm -hmm. i go right to that bottleneck and then i say is there a state under this so if you have really poor balance i can take you to rolling left and right and you're probably going to show me a rolling asymmetry that's about as mm, obvious as your single leg stance asymmetry when i take you out of the practice session down below this conscious orientation, do a little adjustment of you, if you will. Meaning, yeah, you're holding your breath when you roll. So let's just get a rolling session going. They come back up and post better single leg stance. There's a transparency there that a lot of therapists don't get. I didn't practice balance for four minutes. They know I didn't practice balance for four minutes. I practiced something that looks so different than balance that it doesn't even have the same connotation. Right. This is like, and then I brought, yeah, I brought like, you back up like, to the same. 
right? So I just want to make this, I think is an important concept. I want to clarify for people, like, especially clinically, it's instead of practicing a fastball to throw a faster fastball, you're practicing a knuckleball, a curveball. You're even doing something like playing basketball to throw a faster fastball. So it's, exactly. it's that same concept, right? Exactly. Because we know if, if you've ever learned, I've got, I've got actually, uh, probably two learning disabilities. I didn't know about till I got in college. I'm ADHD and I got dyslexia. So I'm just like, Hey, let me take the C because yep. the way you guys want me to learn is going to take me 25 hours a day to get an A, but mm -hmm. I can coast by at a C and the effort to get a B from you people, right? Because if you have a reading problem in every test you're taking, even in science and, and mathematics is sentences, you're right. done, right? <laughs> Anyway, I have the same issue <laughs> when you have a learning disability or when you're trying to learn optimally, yeah. chunking information is extremely important. Five and 10 minute chunks smaller than that if you're frustrated, mm -hmm. but getting out of the domain you're trying to overthink and getting into a natural balance, reaction, timing, orientation, coordination that you still have. So a lot of low back patients retain the pattern to do quadruped diagonals, the classic bird dog exercise that everybody does, but nobody could speak a half hour on why that's so important. Where would I go if they can't do that? And what do I do if they can? If they can't bird dog, get them to rolling. And if they can, you better be taking their ass to half kneeling as quick as possible because they're not going to be here enough visits for you to polish each of these patterns to perfection. You use them just like a, a rock climber advances up the, the wall. That could have been a better hold, but I didn't have a better hold, but I had to get up the wall. So you do. So when I break down somebody's problem, I know they got a sleep problem. I know they're 30 pounds overweight. I know their O2 sat's about 96 or 97 right now. And I know they're probably dehydrated. Any exercise at all is probably going to stir up more inflammation than healing. What do I do? The very first thing I do is find out that fundamental movement pattern that doesn't provoke pain and also creates just enough challenge to make them aware, but not enough to intimidate them. Right. That is where we sit. If this is the biggest bite you can chew, more on the fork doesn't do anybody any good. And the more I tell them and the less I let them experience. So if I, if I tell you, Aaron, you got a balance problem, I'm not. I'm going to say, get up off the floor. You will use one leg more than the other because you will pick one half kneeling as opposed to the other one. Then I'll say, now do it the other way. I barely can. That's what I mean about a balance problem. Yeah. And they're like, and this, oh yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And that's kind of like where you start getting buy-in. And I, I think with from the patients, right? And I think the, the most amazing thing for me in some of those situations is I'll take someone who's a former professional athlete or their top level athlete, put them in a position that's compromising, like single leg, uh, like what the half kneeling single leg lunge and they're sweating bullets and they can't hold it. And they're just like, Whoa, like this should be easy. And now they've bought in. And, I mean, and you know what? I, right? I also tell them you're not this deconditioned because I've done that half kneeling trick too. And mm -hmm. if you narrow the base, um, they go sympathetic on you. Yeah. And so the response they're having is a anti fall fear strategy, not a, I've got a, own this position strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I mean, there's a lot of people that can't half kneel comfortably, but oh man, if today's workout has Turkish get up on it, then we got to do that. And I'm like, you're just going to rush through 
a very stable transition point that's made to make the move work better, not, right. not less. But, but I, I try to create with the data I collect, mm -hmm. screening, assessment with my hands, with my history, with any other device I'm using, I try to convert that into a nonverbal experience that we can both share. So whenever I say you got a balance problem, it's not like they're intimidated by me saying you're slouching again, you didn't remember to engage your glutes. Nobody's supposed to do that. You're supposed to friggin' walk. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I'm trying to say is, remember how you felt when I made you roll to your left and get up on your left side as opposed to roll to your right and get up on your right side? Remember how you felt? Try that again right now. Does that feel better or worse? Yeah. Oh, that's way better than whatever nutrient this whole thing needs because part of this is your awareness. Part of this is your mode programming. Part of this is your tissue warm up. Part of this is you having a better sense of awareness and you actually slow down. And by the way, the last time you did this, I got it on video. You held your breath the whole time. Right. I think, you know, now I think that's not. what's so effective, at least for me, what really clicked when I started um, using SFMA in our practice was that it wasn't about making people think about moving. It was giving them some external input or challenge that improved their movement and saying, Oh, how did that feel? Or what, remember what you felt like rather than do these, like breathe, let go, tighten your glutes, do all like do 10 step process that I can't even remember. And people can't conceptualize in their bodies, but it's the feeling that they're getting during that session, I think is what's been the most powerful change for people. No, it is. And, and when I've had an intern with me for more than a year, I start zip tying their hands and their mouth behind their back and saying, listen, they don't have to learn what you know about being a sniper to reclaim their health. And you can talk your way through it and say, I'm penetrating the multifidus on the right right now, and I've just landed on your lamina and stuff like that. I mean, you can impress people with medical speak. But on the other side of that, I try to Mark Twain the shit out of it. Mark Twain can say the same thing Aristotle said in half the words, <laughs> and most rednecks can get it. Right. That's where I live. And, and the more people that can understand the concept, the better it is. So don't tell people you're a sniper or tell them what you did to acquisition the target unless they ask. You'll know I'm a sniper when a half mile away, you hear the steel go ping. I don't have mm -hmm. to tell you because <laughs> you're not going to find many other people that can do that. And that's what you hear when you take the little extra time to do a, an SFMA, you will hear people say, I've never had a more thorough exam or a cleaner explanation. Well, they go hand in hand because I left no stone unturned. I knew which one was the next one in the way. It's not the only problem you got, but it's the only one I want your help with. The rest is my problem. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I'll unpack that because the cool thing is when you get to the weakest link and when you work from the minimum effective dose, meaning if you're, if you're on the weakest link and it ain't changing, you're not doing what you're doing enough or you're doing the wrong thing. That's it. And so it's a really easy place to come out of. But once we got the minimum effective dose, if I've got a compliance issue, I can't, I can't let you off the hook for any less than this because we're not going to make the progress you're paying me to make and I don't need your money that bad. So right. this is, so, so what they don't realize is through the integrity of my exam, I painted them right into a corner of adult accountability. Here's your bottleneck. Here's your weakest link. 
and here's the least you can possibly do and not waste both our time. Right. And, and then people I have don't, to see a result say it that from that way. too, right? Right. Oh, yeah. They have to feel the result from that. Like they versus, do, but right. But I'm not just saying that. I'm gonna I'm gonna back it up, meaning because the movement model has been the functional movement model has been underplayed and the structural model and the pharmaceutical model and the pain control model have been overplayed. We don't mm -hmm. realize these are equal assets. Right. I know most everything every other clinician knows about the chronic pain model and some of those behaviors. I know, you know, all these other things, but the fact that we don't play the functional test retest as much as we do the structural test retest, right? Yeah. And, and so, so every person who's ever had an x-ray has degenerative changes. And they tell me that like I'm supposed to be impressed by it. I'm like, <laughs> if a baby's been walking three weeks, somebody's going to say they got degenerative changes, man. I mean, they're just saying what they see. I'm not quite so sure that's why this is happening to you now, because most of those degenerative changes were on your x-ray 18 months ago, and you'd never had a back problem 18 months right. ago. So, you know, it's, it's not a lot of logic built in to a structure-based allopathic model. So the only chance we got is to do something that feels awkward or impossible and in the same session liberate that situation knowing that i didn't make you stronger or more mobile in a single session i helped you dump inappropriate tone tension fear and bad feed forward motor programming so. right how do we so how do we get this um get this system get people to look at their movement how do we get looking at someone's movement and movement quality in line before someone's scared to death about insurance and they have to go get an MRI to know exactly what's going on. Like, how do we get that piece? It, what, is there anything we can do as physical therapists or, or just as movement professionals? How do we get that in, in front of the line? So that's the first stop for people. Do you mean um, academically? Like, how do I prepare myself as a clinician to get ready for that? Or how do I prioritize that in the system of my daily practice how, how do we get it yes so how do we do it in our daily practice so like what i really want people to think is is when i tweak my back i know i need a total body diagnostic to know what's going on rather than i know i need an mri so you know when someone gets hurt they tweak their back uh, tweak their knee they go to the orthopedic surgeon orthopedic surgeon says you know what we can always do surgery but first let's get you an mri they don't put their hands on them they don't do any special tests they use the mri as a diagnostic tool not as a um, confirmation of a of the diagnosis or when they're red flags, they just use it across the board. Like, I won't see you unless we have an MRI first. How do we get a physical therapy screen, a movement screen, FMS, a SFMA, a top tier, a something in front of the line so that people in our society know I need to improve my movement to get better long-term rather than I just need to get another X-ray and, and end up being scared because I've got a herniated disc. Well, if the person is truly, truly interested, yeah. I would say, we've got to argue both sides of this thing fairly. Mm -hmm. You will agree that your iPhone both has structure and function to it. Okay. The only way I can test your phone's function is I have to function it. Right. I have to hit buttons and, and open apps and close apps. And to vet the structure, I just got to take it apart and put it back together. To help you, we got to argue both sides. Now, here's my olive branch. You don't have pristine structure. Mm -hmm. But you also don't have pristine function. We've already mapped 
your structural abnormalities. We must also map your functional abnormalities because I can't change your structure as quickly as you need me to. But if we alter your function today, next year your structure looks different. And there's an irony here. All the right-handed tennis players I've ever worked with had greater bone density in their right hand. Now, did they just happen to pick up a racket in that hand uh, or, you know, and, and choose the arm, get lucky and choose the arm with greater bone ben- density or just choking the shit out of that racket on a good top spin forehand, create the muscle compressive forces to activate Wolf's law greater on your right arm than your left arm. So I, I, I will drop something like that to say, mm-hmm. I'm not here to refute the structural model. I'm right. here to defend the functional model because most 90 year olds that are still active and enjoying life and walking around in their community and cognitively and physically participating, you know, as, as somebody who's not having to be taken care of, they don't have perfect structure or function. Mm-hmm. They balanced it out, right? And the balancing act of your structure and function, your, your goals and your capacity, this is the balancing act we're doing. And I've always found there's more adjustability in function, not because I'm good or not because I discovered something unique. There's less that's been done for it. Your PE teacher didn't take a functional approach. Your GP didn't take a functional approach. Your OBGYN didn't take a functional approach. And the person who gave you a hernia repair didn't take a functional approach because that's an orthopedic surgery, but they're not an orthopedic surgeon. So nobody refers rehab post C-section or hernia, even though most of these people would light up an SFMA and are about a year away from low back pain or neck pain because their core was surgically altered and they weren't oriented into rehab. They were mm-hmm. back upright using a core. And that's when those multifidus get sleepy and stuff like that. So I, if I'm not being cocky today, I'll say we've got to be able to argue both sides of this. And once we argue both sides, one's going to make a lot more sense to you. Yeah. And it'll have a lot less barrier to vet. The other way I say it is, listen, the functional movement station has been at the NFL combine for probably 10 years now. Not everybody going through the NFL combine gets an MRI, but guess what every one of them gets? A movement screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's low barrier. It tells me way more about you from head to toe. Does it take the kind of uh, dive that an MRI does? No, But, but I tell you what, you flunk a movement screen bad enough, we'll get an MRI. You can pass an MRI, it doesn't tell me a thing about your movement screen. So, you know, it's, I'll, I'll argue it one way or the other, but I swear making the clinical decision to screen and assess whole movement patterns first is almost like a person who calls themselves an eye doctor, not having the eye chart. Just, I mean, it all starts at the eye chart, right? Uh, It's like, it's like, it doesn't matter what your eyesight is if you can't see, (laughs) but if you can see using a glasses or contacts or some tool, some different, uh, functional, like, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, like a strategy, some kind of, because there's five different strategies we can use to help someone get better at running probably, yep. probably more. It doesn't matter which one of those tools is if the transformation, the, the goal is being met versus what the structure looks like or what the, what the strategy is. Right. Well, see the eye chart is elegant and beautiful. 
mm-hmm. because it's a standard, right? The, the letters are a certain size to correlate with the 20 feet back you're supposed to be. So we don't arbitrarily get to pick the size of the lines that people read. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how I felt when I threw the movement screen out there and people were like, yeah, we do the squat test. We don't do the push up. I'm like, that's like reading line three and thinking you've, you know, it's, it's not, it's not about one pattern's more important than the other mm-hmm. in a developmental progression. Each of these milestones must be competent or it creates a poor foundation for the next movement pattern, which is entirely possible. That's what compensation and adaptation is for. But the other beauty in the eye chart is you wouldn't be in an eye doctor if you had perfect vision. So you're going to be challenged at some point in this visual obstacle course, just like you will be challenged at some point in the SFMA in clinic or in the FMS when you're over at the gym. But that sets a baseline. Because what the doctor at the eye uh, facility is also getting ready to do is lay a lens on your nose. And all of a sudden, the blurry line changes in a single session. Mm-hmm. Now, he can have a set of eyeglasses that's ground to make your eyes converge better and maybe do some eye muscle training. Or this is, hey, your, your lens isn't good anymore, and we got to account for that. I wear readers right now. My point is... Most people that I've met aren't as passionate to set a baseline as me because they aren't as confident in the fact that they're going to change that damn thing way quicker than the consensus. And I already know if I lay a functional milestone down on you, mm-hmm. our 80-20 play is we can modulate it, not just enough for us to measure it different, but enough for you to appreciate it different. And at that level of integrity, we'll move forward from there. Yeah. So I'm not, the, the eye chart's there in the beginning to find out what you are, but it's also there to show you the value of this experience with very little effort on your part or mm-hmm. very little thinking on your part. Just trust me, lay these on, put these glasses on, now how's it look? And that's what I want to do with balance and that's what I want to do with posture and stuff. And ultimately, I think we try to coach people into these places instead of providing an experience where they're like, wow, all you had me do was stretch my back and walk on the balance beam four times. And now my balance is better on that little motor control screen you did. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. that's how easy this is. If we get to the problem, I wouldn't have known to go there had I not broken all those other movements out. Out of the 20 movements I did on you, only two were bad, but I had to do all 20 to figure that out. And I'll never not do all 20. So, right. So I think there's a good uh, kind of time to say you recently wrote a book, The Business of Movement, right? Which is great. I've got a copy and I've I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you about. And I think the very first question, uh, and you talk about this in the book, but I'd love for you to share a little bit is how are you using your screens so that sfma and fms like the different screens that you guys have created to um enhance and grow your business and i think you talk about the effectiveness of the treatment like you have to be good and we've talked about being a sniper but how are you using these um, moments in time of screening people um, to help grow your practice or help grow your business because i think that's one of the number one questions that people are probably asking themselves okay great this sounds good but how is it going to benefit me and my business growth? And I know there's some strategies that you guys have used. uh, It is. And in the beginning, 
the FMS and SFMA were simply internal tools. Mm -hmm. I wasn't advertising them because I came back to my hometown and I was up against two physical therapy practices, the hospital and the orthopedic group's uh, pet dog. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you know, my, my best thing about, you know, and, and I, I guess I offend some people, but if you're in a physician-owned practice, you ain't got to be good. You just got to be there. Just got to be at the end of the conveyor belt and just sign your name to a bunch of things and measure a few things and cut off some TheraBand. 35 years of that, retire in Florida and think you did something, but all you help people do is suffer comfortably. Mm -hmm. And so I was up against the hospital and I was up against the physician group. So the SFMA and FMS couldn't be marketing tools for me. They had to be my Swiss army knife so I could close cases better and more thorough for who first? Football coaches, personal trainers, massage therapists who got a little bit stuck on somebody who had continuous trigger point. I educated the podiatrist and said, hey, you take care of the foot, we'll make sure everything above that is going just like you want it to. I marketed to GPs, general surgeons doing the hernias and stuff like that, the um, oral surgeons doing TMJ. I went everywhere except the orthopedic practice because I knew they weren't going to send me anybody. Mm -hmm. But i tell you what happened. After three years of me doing everything else, one of those orthopods would have a kid or a wife with a problem. They'd send them to me not across the hall. All right. So don't, don't think I wasn't aware of that. Uh, I didn't rub their face in it because they didn't know how to make money as an orthopedic surgeon without also having the kickback from physical therapy to, to get through. Mm -hmm. And that's just like somebody selling a bunch of herbal life in their waiting room. I obviously can't make enough money in healthcare. You got to sell me all my supplements too. That's fine if you do. Um, but I guess where I'm going is first and foremost for me, it helped me close a case and do my job better. And mm -hmm. from that, it then did become a point of how do you guys do things different? And I would say why. So what I would literally say is the first thing I would do if, if you have the SFMA credential, which is our clinical base movement screen, I would literally go on the FMS website and find out how many trainers and strength coaches in my area understood the FMS. Number one, I wouldn't go to them unless I was FMS certified. I got a lot of clinicians that love the SFMA, but they don't understand the FMS. And the FMS is how I discharge people. I don't discharge you with an SFMA. I would like to be ambitious enough to think I can run a long-term projection. I'm not doing it because I think you'll get a perfect movement screen. I can actually design a better, more sustainable workout for you in the future and with your trainer or with your coach if I have an FMS. The SFMA helps me diagnose you. The FMS helps me prognose active people going back to more than sedentary environments. So number one, own both credentials and then go and say, hey, I want to match wits with you. If you guys ever want to get together and do some screens together for friends and family, I'll do that. And anytime you find a problem, I'll run the model as good as you do. Meaning I, I want to trust you. If I send you a screen, you can trust me if you need pain to be broken out of that with an SFMA. So start building the bridge of those people that could be referral sources 
And if you're the only one in the area that, that knows it, I mean, a long time ago, I would hold workshops for um, trainers in my area just to come learn about one movement pattern. They, they already check out if I try to teach them a whole screen, but I was teaching them enough to refer or I was making them aware that when you get a referral from me, I know exercise is good as you, so don't freelance this thing, okay? Hold them together for four weeks until I can take the uh, ropes off of them. They wanna pay you money, they can't afford me anymore, but let's do this together for a month and then do what you need to do. And most people respected that. They, they respected that transparency and I built the network from there. That and we covered all the football games for free for a while. Mm -hmm. Now you better be sure we had on windbreakers with our logo on the back, but you know, parents, coaches, and, and it took me about three years to completely marginalize my local hospital and the orthopedic group. They didn't, they didn't close down. They yeah. just didn't get any of the business I didn't want them to have. Wow. So. That's awesome. What is, <laughs> that's so great. What do you think like with running your practice and running your online education business, what do you think were the one or two most pivotal moments or things that happened to you or aha moments where you saw a problem and you were able to, you know, create something new? Like what were looking back, like, what would you say was the, what was kind of the, um, like that spark that took you to another level with your, with your business growth, leadership management, et cetera. Because I was trying to be respectful mm -hmm. of clinicians, strength coaches, athletic trainers, chiropractors. I, I didn't know how to say, if you don't get standard operating procedure, we can't be peers. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I'm better, doesn't mean you're not. We're doing two different jobs, right? There's a pilot in the cockpit with a clipboard and there's one who just takes a swig of bourbon and says, I can figure this out. And, and I hate to say it, but you're only gonna wanna fly with one of those people. Clinicians uh, are often highly intimidated when another clinician wants to banter this problem, okay? And that's almost like saying I'm a fighter, but I hate to spar, right? <laughs> this is not personal. I'm not trying to one-up you. I'm trying to learn something too. But when, when I got a match wits with Greg Rose, a, a, an amazing chiropractor and biomechanist, it ain't pretty, right? But I can bro hug him on the beginning and I can bro hug him on the back end and we do fine. So the very first thing I did is I saw how many clinicians were overly sensitive and intimidated by me saying, Hey, if you don't run it like this, it's probably not going to run, you know? And then, well, we, we don't have time. We, we don't, and I'm like, you know, then only do, uh, only do SFMA on Tuesday and Thursday mm -hmm. in six months, you'll see those cases close quicker because you're on the problem quicker. But I think I didn't come out of the gates. I came out of the gates a little humble, a little apologetic saying, this is a practical tool. Research hasn't figured out how it works yet. They would still rather you have two camera systems and a force plate. I can kick your ass every day of the week with a better movement model because there are no assumptions built into it. Doesn't mean I don't have value of force plate. I just don't need it to diagnose you. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't. So I should have come out earlier saying, you're either doing it this way or you're not. Um, I probably would have hurt our business a little bit but at the same time, now going back and getting people 
please don't treat the functional battery of test that we assembled as a buffet that you're educated enough to consume. If you come on board and you're thinking efficient, not effective, you will arbitrarily delete tests you don't understand, and that is the worst time to delete a test. You're going to delete a test that you're intimidated by or don't know if they were to flunk this test, how would I intervene and correct that? So I think what we really have is when we teach people assessment, we unpack the holes in their manual therapy, in their knowledge of exercise, in their knowledge of movement screening, patterning, balance control, and stuff like that. And one of the things that I try to tell the orthopedic physical therapist I work with is, listen, all I'm doing is throwing the neuro component right back in. Never assume that an orthopedic patient doesn't have an equally burdened neurological system and perceptive behavior system. And so you can talk labrum, meniscus, and so as all day long. If they don't know how to hip hinge, you're always going to have those problems, right. you know? And if they do, you might still have them, but you could go 10 years without having to have any scopes on these areas. So mm -hmm. I think my one regret is I wish I could have found a kinder way to say, if you're not going to fight the Gracie way, then don't call it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Just say I'm a really good street fighter that likes to go to the ground, but don't say you're, you know, don't right. say the Gracie yeah. school is bro, bro hugged you because yeah. different. And when I got to get into curriculum and, and certain schools started adopting the model, I'm like, drill this stuff because we don't fall to the level of our education. We fall to the level of our training and our drilling. So if you can't get through a top gear SFMA in two minutes, then I don't care how long you take. You're overanalyzing something that was meant to be a fluid, dynamic representation of their abilities and bottlenecks. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I get it. I agree. I think it's important. I, there was one other thing in the book that you said that really made a that, that stuck out to me. And you said new concepts on the leading edge of any field rarely come out of evidence. Right? Can you explain yeah. a little bit about what you mean about that and why why that's important? Well, they, they do come out of evidence, but not the kind that we're used to consuming in journal articles, mm -hmm. okay? I think the, the FMS was already a very well-respected tool in the NFL and in the all six SEAL teams before any journal article ever recognized that and and some of the researchers that did initially want to unpack the movement screen didn't even get certified in the movement screen and therefore did the scoring criteria wrong on many of their first fms articles now i wouldn't try to comment or do research on kettlebells if i wasn't certified and i definitely wouldn't try to comment on cpr to the red cross if i hadn't at least gone through the training Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of PhDs out there that just saw this out of left field movement appraisal. So there's nothing in the, uh, how can I say, the evidence-based practice that told us to take a functional approach. My gut told me, holy shit, I've got a page worth of data on this person, and I still can't tell you if they can deep squat or not. And it's a universal, fundamental, 
representation of core stability, hip mobility, ankle mobility, and actually balance strategy. If somebody can deep squat, they're not going to have a big trouble getting up off the floor. And if somebody can't, it's going to look different. And, right. and so, so there was just so much, um, there was just so much natural humanity that, that we weren't bringing to the exam. So the day I invented the movement screen, I didn't throw away manual muscle testing and goniometry. Mm -hmm. I simply said, if manual muscle testing and goniometry say you're good and it hurts to touch your toes, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge the impairment measures with a global functional measure. You're, whether you know it or not, your insurance is paying me to generate a global better behavior out of you, both with risk and symptoms. Your goniometer can be one of the bottlenecks. Your lack of strength can be one of the bottlenecks. But the funny thing is when we take a goniometric or manual muscle test approach, it's real easy to get blinders on and strengthen that muscle group you were thinking of and assume that gait fixed itself. Right. You know, you get, I've seen trend Ellenberg with a weak glute medius and with a strong glute medius. <laughs> so, so the glute medius isn't the, isn't yeah. the bottleneck here sometimes. And I think it goes back to what you said in the beginning where it was like, instead of making you suffer less, I'm going to figure out how to get you out of the door, out of the room. Right. right. And I think that that's one of the things that, um, this, uh, pointed out to me and, and you may or may not see this, but the way I see it is great. You've got a superpower to find solutions to problems. Other people aren't seeing and you said, Hey, I found something that means something to me. Let me prove it myself and then go teach it to other people. And I think that that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that there is a value in doing something that's not, not the way it's always been done because that's where innovation happens. Right. And, and, you know, I, I want the people listening to this podcast to realize early in my career, I recognized that there wasn't enough precision in the diagnostic process. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's inflammation. Oh, it's this. Who's going to question you, right? Who's going to question you? So I said, I need a local and global appraisal of movement. So if I say you got horrible ankle mobility, not only can my goniometer tell me that, your deep squat can tell us that, okay? Mm -hmm. If I say you've got poor core stability and single leg stance on left, I can check the muscles in the hip and show that they're weaker on that side, but I can also ask you to balance. When both those measures agree, or when both those measures disagree, I feel like I have alignment with local measurement or impairment measures and global or functional measures. What I then realized going through all my manual therapy search is many musculoskeletal therapists don't really isolate the broken pattern. They are very good at getting to the part sometimes, but they don't really show all the different ways that pattern represents itself. Open chain, closed chain, asymmetrical, symmetrical, transitional, right? So I started looking at that and I'm like, okay, I got global and local right now. Now that we can take the SFMA and go right down the rabbit hole, and, and shoot like a sniper. I literally think the thing that therapists trying to distinguish their self in the near future are going to have to run lifestyle, meaning almost everything I said in that book is you're getting ready to have a little bit longer term relationship with your patient than you thought. But if you envision that as manual therapy, 
that's not going to work. They can ask Google the same question they can ask you, and Google will answer it quicker and flashier and link them with a lot of confirmation bias that makes Google sound smarter than you, right? Right. I did a Google talk, by the way. It's up if anybody <laughs> wants to. It's like a long-form TED talk. Dr. But Google that's an Dr. impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I call it, I call it uh, search for your movement because if Google knows what I'm searching for, then uh -huh. believe it or not, I figured out what you're searching for and it's not side planks. It's a better core and those two have nothing to do with each other. Um, but when, when we go at this, I honestly think that when somebody decides to pay cash for your service, they're probably the same kind of person that can afford a wearable. Mm -hmm. So I can have an objective conversation about your sleep right now. If you got on a Garmin watch or an Aura ring or a Whoop band or a Fitbit, I can have an objective conversation about your sleep, your steps. My, my Aura ring does my O2 sat when I sleep right now. When I had COVID, I could talk to my doctor about my temperature over a 24-hour cycle. So the first thing I want your listeners to understand is if your client has already picked you, it doesn't mean they have disposable income. It means they value your service. Upstream from a movement problem is poor sleep, hydration, breathing, and an inflammatory diet. Downstream of a movement problem is activity level, BMI, and incomplete rehab from the last thing you just did. I want that in the room. I can probably shave three treatment days off you by doing that. And I don't mind doing that. I don't mind telling you that because you already know I'm trying to maximize value. And I'm also trying to say the more, I don't say home exercise program, the more self-care you'll do, the quicker we'll both be happy with this. If you become independent quicker, that doesn't cost me a dime. I got somebody waiting for your slot. It's not, this doesn't run that way. But periodic touches with me as you transition back to a fully independent life are going to be high value because we're not going to do the SFMA in a month. We're going to do the FMS and YBT in a month because you want to be playing more golf next spring. Mm -hmm. So that's the transition of this. And so we met on low back pain. We're going to finish taking four off your handicap, not because I'm a golf coach, because I realize if you can only walk nine, your game is deteriorating um, as you Absolutely. play nine. Yeah. So, so now I look at the wearable. Now I'm very involved in creating self-care apps so I can basically line up the dominoes that get your musculoskeletal system ready to change. And if I'm issuing a corrective exercise on a sleep-deprived, dehydrated person with a breathing problem, it's not going to stick. You're, 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 you're writing a document and you're not hitting save on it. And so breathing screens, wearables, uh, a quick talk. I'm not trying, when I have a nutrition talk with somebody, I'm not having the weight loss talk. I'm saying the four most inflammatory foods on the planet, right? Refined sugar, alcohol, specifically mm -hmm. gluten and dairy are going to light you up. I ain't saying you got to quit this. I'm saying for the next two weeks, if you could figure this out, you're going to be carrying a more honest inflammatory load in your low back so I can treat the local back inflammation as opposed to the global lifestyle inflammation that is now a complicating factor. And so if we're impassioned to find regional interdependence, meaning, oh, 
Why would I work on a shoulder when you got a stiff T-spine? You wouldn't. You'd fix that too. Why would I work on your low back if you've got insomnia? It's, I'm not going to win. The insomnia is going to win. So I don't have to be a sleep expert, a nutrition expert, a breathing expert to do this. I know the minimum acceptable O2 sat I want to see at night. It ain't going below 97, you know, if, if things are good. I need your heart rate variability to be here. I don't want you running a temperature at night. I don't need you eating after 8 o'clock. All these things are an inflammatory burden that that E-stem and ice ain't going to take care of. So I just talk unbelievably plain like that to people. And mm -hmm. when they go reference me, you know, on Google, they're like, wow, he's, he's getting ahead of the game. That's, that's how you distinguish yourself in a market um, where you, you consider the service high value. Yeah. So, wow, that's awesome. It's incredible. Um, Gray, before we wrap up, is there anything else you think, uh, people listening should know about or anything else that maybe I didn't ask you about that we should, uh, finish with? No, I, those, those people listening that are in a practice, a practice where I guess you're the chief and mm -hmm. you got at least one, two, maybe five or 10 Indians, right? Right. I have always pulled my team close. I would rather have 10 clinics with small teams than an equal number of employees under one roof because it's easier to, to serve people with dialed in teams. I empowered my PTAs and my ATCs and my techs to do as many of my tests as possible. Not because I'm too good to do it, but because I, I think the level of letting your uh, staff, like one of my PTAs, best manual, manual muscle tester. We used a JTEC device, handheld manual muscle tester. One of my PTAs was um, low back. Uh, as far as low back exercises and stuff like that, they just had roles. But, you know, in this book, The Business of Movement, we have uh, chiropractic techs videoing the top tier, the SFMA. We've got ATCs helping my discharge with a movement screen. Um, right now, uh, we've got techs that feel very comfortable having conversations with our clients that do have wearables. As a matter of fact, there are apps where we can track the, the, the domains they want to work on. So the very first thing I do when I get new opportunities is I don't do those in my exam. My exam is already full. You know everything that we're trying to look at. So the on-ramp to get to me should unpack valuable information that makes my staff feel like way more than an usher from the waiting room to the exam room. No, you are part of this unpacking process. And when I send you out to the gym, cause I got another exam, that, that unpacking process, that exercise is going to go smooth. Cause we all train together. We all know the metric. So I never did my own manual muscle test and I rarely did my own balance test, but I deferred to who did the test. So if I thought I did something to change balance and send them back out for a repeat and it wasn't better, I owned it. Mm -hmm. My PTA said, now nah, balance didn't change. I got to own it in front of the patient and in front of them. Now, part of my job is make sure that doesn't happen too often. Right. But as long as it's happening less than 20% of the time, I'm an expert. Yeah. So, uh, so, that, so that, believe it or not, if you've got somebody who's building a staff and building a team, mm -hmm. you got to own that book first. You got to walk the walk first. And you got to be willing to consume the services that you're providing. Once done, 
you got to take care of each other. So we get a new screen, we get a new app, we get a new test. We do it in-house on a Thursday night over pizza and see how do we unpack this? How do we talk about this? How do we value this? One of the first things we came up with is we're doing an SFMA on every person in this clinic. And that created a huge obstacle. Mm -hmm. I said, but we ain't got to do it on day one. If they're post-surgical, they're acutely inflamed, and they need a big old bro hug and the fact that everything's going to be fine and we're going to get some swelling off the, this knee, they're not getting an SFMA today. They're not getting a YBT today. They're getting good physical therapy today. They're getting some self-care. And if you come back and this thing's this swollen, you're, I know you're not, you haven't done anything I told you to do. So do we have to be functional movement systems day one? No. But before you're done here, we will be. And that's where I, all the excuses of not doing advanced functional metrics are all time constraints, and I can't do this on day one. It doesn't matter what their SFMA says. If you're acutely inflamed and you're not weight-bearing, why do I care about doing a functional test today? Right. <laughs> We're doing right. lymphatic drainage today, bro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the patient will go like, why are you looking at that? This is where it hurts. And, it's, it's, uh, and then even if they're acutely painful, it's just going to mask all the movement uh, faults because it's the pain that's controlling the movement, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, the, you know, a lot of people will say, no, it's the other knee. And I'm like, this is my baseline, right? <laughs> right. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's the only other knee you got. So let me start on the good side. Yeah. And it, it creates a humorous interplay. But, but yeah. yeah, if a mechanic only looks at what you point at on your car, they're not as good as the guy who walks all the way around you know, and, and takes in his own information while still listening to what you said, mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. the difference. Yeah, so. that's great. So Gray, if someone wants to uh, find you, I, mean, I know you're kind of hard to find online, but like, what's the best place to find you online? And if they want to get a copy of the book, where should they go to find it? Um, uh, Amazon uh, mm -hmm. is, is easy. And if you like to listen to books like I do, it is now on Audible. And oh, the good great. news is I only read a small portion of the book. Georgie Fear uh, does a great job with the read and, and the story. And I almost wish that even the parts that I read for the book, now she reads too. The cool thing is the way we built that book is uh, you got a QRL code. So you get mm -hmm. to the end of a chapter and you just want to hear me do the summary, maybe even practice for the way you talk to your staff or patients. Run that, run your phone right over that. It takes you right to the video. So I tried to make the book as interactive, interactive as possible and, and really sort of restructure your practice because the hidden gem in that is if you're already a competent musculoskeletal practitioner, then the skill set I want you to get is not more musculoskeletal. You need to pivot and adopt a wellness umbrella. So all questions of wellness are redirected back through your thought process, but you're not going to be able to charge the same for wellness as therapy. But I honestly think it is an asset to transitional discharge and people who may not be able to afford a deep dive. Um, I think we've got to build that bridge. So much of what we do in musculoskeletal medicine is in silos, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a silo of healthcare and there's a silo of fitness, strength, conditioning. And in between those two silos lives everybody else, right? Because they're, they're not fit enough to do what they want to do and they're not sick enough to get physical therapy, but they can't touch their toes, they can't squat, and they're riding a golf cart instead of walking like they promised their wife they would. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, I think there's an unbelievable, subtle 
wellness message in that book that shows you how to use the same resources, staff, models to give people a little therapy and a lot of wellness instead of a lot of therapy and a little wellness. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I really think that that I would I would be more than happy to unpack this again if some mm -hmm. people dive into the book and then and then say where where are my opportunities here but I think they're going to be obvious. Yeah. I really do. Awesome. I'd love to do that. And I think and you and uh Lee have a podcast it's called Movement Pod. It, where does someone go to listen to more about you guys talking about FMS and all the things? Yeah, movementpod.com and here's one that that I'll throw out to your clinicians right now. Mm -hmm. When Gray Cook unpacks his own stress recovery cycle, yeah, I don't have a problem finding activity, stress, or steps in my day. I have been a poor sleeper most of my life. I've had seasonal allergies, and I've been a binge eater with uh, probably a little bit of hypoglycemia. My musculoskeletal system runs better when I do my recovery better than when I have access to the best soft tissue people in the world. And I have both. Right. <laughs> I, can, I can get dry needled by the best people in the world, but it's better if I just take care of myself. And Lee and I approach the stress recovery cycle dilemma where I honestly think that the more access we independent practitioners have to signs of good recovery. Now, I use the balance test and grip test as, as a recovery indicator. But when I've got somebody with an aura ring or, or another wearable, I incorporate that data immediately into how I challenge them. I would almost rather people do better rest and recovery and not do home exercise if they've got to make the choice. Now, if they're going to do home exercise, all the better. But that's how passionate I am about how many toxic lifestyles I've had to unpack in the last eight years of practice oh, yeah. from pro athletes all the way down to a farmer I saw last week. It's, oh my gosh, the toxic lifestyle is a bigger burden than the musculoskeletal issue, but they're here and this is a musculoskeletal issue and it's where their focal point is. So all I got to do is sell them on the upstream behavior and the downstream outcome we're shooting for. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I've, I've found a McDonald's, uh, like, cup and like wrapper and fries like full in one of my trash cans one time i was like where'd that come from you know and i think it was like a patient i'd had to talk to about you know she had like a chronic uh fatigue and a bunch of things we talked about lifestyle and i think she had had that must have had that in her, her pocket that day and i was like oh no did i go too hard on that for her but there's a balance there and i think that was one of those moments where i had like i knew that this lifestyle was so much more important than anything i could do with my hands that day and it's like, there's a balance for people, I think, about how we address it. Uh, I don't know. I think that's- a, No, I'll give, you, I'll give you one quick story. Right? And this is way before, this is 15 years ago. I had a, I had a um, patient, she's a single mom, limited to six total visits for low back pain. Mm -hmm. we, we could see her in the evening. We were seeing some athletes and stuff like that. My very first visit, she had a, a, a distended abdomen and a lot of touchiness to her abdomen. Yeah low back pain, typical bad core, a lot of things going on. But she also made some comments as to her back pain was worse and she was frequently constipated and stuff like that. And I just talked to her about her diet and I gave her the, inf uh, the inflammatory food talk. And she goes, really? And I'm like, I tell you what, if it's white, just don't eat it for two weeks, right? And since you've only got five visits left with me, let's, I want you to take every bit of time you'd spend coming here manage your diet, 
and, and just literally let's get the inflammatory foods out of your diet. Mm -hmm. She was very, uh, concerned about her distended abdomen. Yeah. And, uh, I measured her midline umbilical. She dropped four inches in her waist in two weeks wow. and didn't drop a pound, meaning her body weight was the same. She was also 50% less on her low back pain rating scale. Her single leg stance was better and her toe touch was almost complete. I still had a bunch of work to do on her hips, but I waited on those other five visits to let her realize that there's no way in six visits without you eating better and realizing that that was part of the problem that, that this is going to get here. So that was me sort of laying up in physical therapy mm -hmm. because she could have easily quit before I collected for those other five visits. Right. But I honestly cared and measured her and told her, I've experienced this personally. I've done this with other people. I don't want to be right. I, I, if this is all low back, it is, but I got a, I got a bad feeling that a lot of this is, is lifestyle. And she, she, she bought into it. She, she did. And like I said, I don't even think we needed the five visits. I put her once a week for, for five weeks, which insurance doesn't even know what to do with that back in those days, <laughs> right? That I'm trying to save you money and do them a turn too. But anyway, that is an early crossroads in my career when I'm like, listen, there's no such thing as a family doc anymore. There's no such thing as a, a, you know, you just talk to your neighbor over the fence and get your counseling that way, right? Everything is a formal therapeutic relationship. This is, this is how I unpack your back. You know, yeah. I'm going to fix your gut first. <laughs> so. Right, right. No, that's incredible. It's a great story. And, and thank you for sharing. Gray, this has been uh, really um, awesome to have you on the show, to hear about some of the things that you're doing, what you're up to, and how um, kind of the systems and uh, strategies that you're using have helped you with your business, your practice, helping people. So thank you again for spending time on the show with us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And our workshops are easy to find. We do them virtual. You can do online at your own pace or every now and then we still do live workshops, but we're finding the virtual. We're having a lot of um, good case studies, meaning we mm -hmm. teach the course and unpack a case on those. The podcast, I think our most popular one this season was on low back. Um, so the most recent one was stress recovery. We've had a lot of, um, we've had Kelly Starrett on there. We've had Katie Bowman on there. And these are people I'm just personally interested in, in their own turn to movement. So if you're, if you're into some of the movement topics we unpack, you can watch them on YouTube and listen to them on any, uh, podcast thing. The audio book can be, uh, gotten on a Kindle or paperback and it's also, uh, audible and, um, you'll, if people lean in, there's going to be some, some new stuff coming out of our camp pretty quick in, awesome. in education and resources. So great. I'm, I'm and excited. I think, and I think that we talked earlier, what we're going to do is as this episode comes out, we're going to run a contest on Instagram for a couple, you're going to give away a couple signed books. And I think I even got Matt to agree to some swag or t-shirts or something to put in there. So if oh, you guys we, are listening, right. And it's, this episode's just come out, go, uh, check our Instagram at Aaron LeBauer and Gray's, uh, what the movement pod, and we'll have some mm -hmm. information up there about the giveaway and how you can enter to do that. Yep. And anything you want to see from what we do, functionalmovement.com, that's the website. Everything we've ever taught or done is somehow, uh, on that as well. So, yeah, it was awesome. Well, it's been a great, it's been a huge resource to me and my practice and our patients here. And so one, I just have to thank you for 
for that because uh, I came into PT already knowing how to do manual therapy because I've been a massage therapist and it was the missing key that I didn't get in PT school about how to create, like become a, a better sniper and clinician. But also um, one of the things that really impressed me when I came to your first course was, I think Kyle was up there. He said, this is uh, what you do before your manual therapy intervention, no matter whether it's you know needling MFR or anything. And it was very inclusive of all of the inter interventions. And I really appreciated that too. So thank you. Well, no, and, and I, I want to say this because I think one of your talents uh, is not just business. Mm -hmm. I think that you represent what I like in, in a clinician who's also running a business well enough to advise others. You became effective before you obsessed on efficiency. And I've worked for a lot of big hospitals and a lot of healthcare organizations that brought me in for efficiency mm -hmm. and didn't allow me to upgrade the effectiveness. And I'm like, hey, if you're selling shit, it doesn't matter how cheap it is, right? <laughs> so at some point, we got to raise the bar and then the market, the environment, and our own need for efficiency will slick this process up. But, but you got to get more effective than your competition, and you won't do that efficiently. You will become efficient. But if you're not better than them, you can't afford to out-advertise them. So it's almost a losing game. So I, I commend you on that, the fact that you, got, you knew you had a very effective manual therapy touch and enough feedback to say, all right, now that I'm probably delivering a better result, I got to get that efficient or I still won't be able to compete. But I think most people put efficiency first mm -hmm. and they, they burden themselves and their staff. And, and, but there is something exhilarating about taking a small staff and becoming significantly better than your competition before anybody knows about it. Yeah. it and, and then they will. So they will, you know, the work speaks for itself, but also it's the, uh, you know, yeah, it's the being effective and having great work, but then also being able to say, here's the one thing that you need to work on. I don't need to overburden you with in your home life. Just do these one or two things. And it just, people go, wow. Like that. Well, one people thing used to do that in our own community. They'd be, yeah. we had a, I think we had an old guy laying on a table one time in the clinic and there was a NASCAR driver on <laughs> one side and an NFL player from green Bay on the other side. And he's looking left and right. Like, mm -hmm. what are y'all doing here? And they're like, Hey, this is, this is, this is where we get our answers. And it was one of those things where the funny thing was he was impressed, yeah. but we as the staff were doing the exact same thing five years earlier before anybody noticed. So our standard operating procedure that brought those guys in from hundreds of miles away had not changed since the day we did it. It was just the after effect and ripple effect of what we had done. So, right. Yeah. Wow. So I guess number one lesson is uh, stay in the game. Don't quit. <laughs> Keep going. Don't quit. If you, if you got something that's working, don't quit. Yeah. Right. No. And you know what? If you're effective, you won't burn out. Yeah. You may overwork yourself sometimes, but if you're transforming lives and you're doing it in a good way, you won't burn out. I find that burnout is most endemic on people who don't feel they're making a change or don't feel they're in an environment where they can. Right. My dad told me that. I was in a practice one time and we were having a heart to heart and he said, uh, do you trust who you work with? And I said, no, he goes, get out. And then I hit him with like 16 butts, but I got a house and I got a farm and I got that. He goes, you didn't ask me that. <laughs> All right. Get out. And, and he was right. And it was the best move I ever made. FMS happened two years after that. Wow. So.
Yep. That's incredible. Well, Gray, I'd love to keep chatting with you, but I know you got to go. And I, I think I got something coming up too. So um, <laughs> if we need to do this again, I'd love to do that uh, to unpack some more, but I really appreciate you being here. And hey, everyone go, um, go to Instagram, check us out, look for that uh, giveaway, but uh, go follow Gray uh, Movement Pod and the functional movement. I think you guys have a Instagram for that as well. Um, we do. Their, their courses and programs have been really helpful for us and many of our clients. So um, thank you for joining us. Gray, thanks again. Don't quit. Keep going. Uh, find the effectiveness or the, the effectiveness before the efficiency and uh, don't stop, never quit. And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you so thanks, much. Brother. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to the show. Whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you grow your physical therapy business. Number one, grab a free copy of my book. It's the roadmap to launch, grow, and scale your physical therapy business. Just go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's cashptblueprintbook.com. Just cover shipping and we'll send it out to you ASAP. Number two, join our Cash PT Blueprint case study program. We're putting together a new coaching case study program this month. And if you'd like to work with me to launch a six-figure cash practice in just 90 days, send me a message over on Instagram. Find me at Aaron LeBauer on Instagram and send me a message with just the words blueprint. And we'll get back to you with all the details. Or number three, if you're an established PT business owner and you want to work directly with me and my team to take your business to multiple six and seven figures, just send me a message over on Instagram with the word private. And I'll get back to you with the details about that program too. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week on the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast.